0: everybody. Welcome to North Coast Chronicles podcast, Tales from the Great Lakes. I'm your host, Helen Brohl. Please join me every month as we explore the nature, folklore, and charm of the Great Lakes, America's fourth seacoast. Thank you to the American Shoreline Podcast Network for hosting North Coast Chronicles. Check out the entire collection of podcasts related to ocean, coastal, and inland resources at coastalnewstoday.com. Today's episode is Conservation Heroes of the Great Lakes. We have three amazing guests, who have taken seeds of ideas to conserve and protect the areas in which they live and built them into highly successful programs. Lisa kutchbach broll is a founding member and current chair of the Lake Erie Islands Conservancy on South Bass Island, Ohio, which has conserved over a hundred acres of coveted coastal properties on the Bass Islands. She has worked with the National Park Service as an instructor at the Ohio State University Stone Laboratory. She established an annual nature camp for kids, led senior road scholar programs, She's a certified Project Wet, Wild, and Learning Tree Facilitator, as well as working as a biological technician with USGS and the Department of Agriculture. She has been a local park commissioner and on the board of Lake Erie Islands Nature and Wildlife Center. She has a bachelor's and master's degree in natural resources from The Ohio State University. Go Buckeyes! And most impressively, as a master of ice fishing. Thank you for joining us, Lisa.
1: Thanks for the invitation today to talk about the Conservancy.
0: Our second guest is Glenn Chown, and he is a founding member and current executive director of the Grand Traverse Regional Land Conservancy. In this position, he oversees the regional conservancy's effort to protect scenic, natural, and farmlands in Antrim, Benzie, Grand Traverse, Kalkaska, and Manistee counties in northern Michigan. Glenn has been instrumental in preserving more than 44,000 acres of land and nearly 140 miles of shoreline along the region's scenic rivers, lakes, and streams. He is a member of the Land Trust Alliance's Leadership Council, as well as a founding board member of Michigan's Heart of the Lake Center for Land Conservation Policy. He has a bachelor and master's degree in natural resources from the University of Michigan, Go Blue. Hi, Glenn.
2: Hello, Helen. Thanks for inviting me. It's great to be here today.
0: Our third guest is Pam Grasmick, a retired nurse and a fourth-generation native of Irish descent on Beaver Island, Michigan. Pam's passion for the pristine natural resources of the Beaver Island Archipelago has led her to work with diverse state, tribal, and regional agencies and organizations on invasive species removal, habitat protection, and restoration. She's active on many boards which serve the island community. Pam was project coordinator for the establishment of the Beaver Island Birding Trail and the Beaver Island Water Trail. So excited to have her share the many unique attributes that made Beaver Island special to early settlers and continues to charm everyone today. Thank you for taking time to join us, Pam.
3: Thank you for the invitation, Helen. I'm looking forward to the discussion.
0: And with us as always is our trustee engineer, Tyler Buckingham. Hi, Tyler.
4: Hey, Helen. How's it going?
0: Good. It's hard to believe it's almost the end of February. So how is your winter going?
4: I have to say it's going pretty good. Uh, I'm enjoying the darker months this year.
0: But I'm guessing no ice fishing this winter.
4: No ice fishing for me down in Texas, (laughs) now.
0: Well, when our guest Lisa and I caught up this morning, she was calling from the ice shanty. Makes me feel woefully inadequate sitting in front of the computer and not catching my own walleye dinner. I'm thinking you know how to catch a fish and clean it, though, Tyler.
4: I do, actually. I, I was taught that as a kid. Oh, excellent. Cool. I'm going to make you a
0: Great Lakes guy yet. I'm, I'm serious. Well, last month on North Coast Chronicles, we had as our guest musician and Great Lakes storyteller Lee Murdoch from Chicago. All I can say, Tyler, is the show was fun, fun, fun. What was your favorite part?
4: Well, I first of all, just having live music on the show, having him actually play these songs uh, was really I, very cool. First for me as the podcast producer, Helen. But also, uh, I really, I have to say, uh, the Great Lakes song is an earworm and I I went on a whole Lee Murdoch kick. Uh, which I have to say was, you know, my friends. I've, I introduced a lot of people uh, down here in Texas to Lee Murdoch.
0: Oh, well, I, I'm not surprised because I had the Great Lakes song in my head, too. You know, sweet mother, Michigan, father superior, coming down from Mackinac and Sault Ste. Marie. It's um It's so catchy. And if you're from the Great Lakes, it's actually very sentimental as well. Um, But I did not know that the Great Lakes song was written by Pat Daly, who's another Great Lakes balladeer, but from the Lake Erie Islands area, and his buddy, the well-known poet, Shel Silverstein. I thought that was cool to learn. But um, Lee was just an amazing guest. shared an incredible portfolio of uh, Great Lakes and Great Lakes shipping songs, um, many of which were just um, just so beautiful and terrific, and he was a great guest. So I really hope that you'll all check out Lee Murdoch's portfolio of albums, songs, and performances, and he makes homemade guitar stands, I thought that was cool, at leemurdoch at gmail.com. As everybody knows, February is Black History Month. I want to give a quick shout out to the Tuskegee Airmen of World War II. The first African-American pilots trained by the United States Army Air Corps earned their wings at Tuskegee Army Airfield in Alabama during World War II. But beginning in the spring of 1943, fighter pilots from Tuskegee received advanced training in Michigan. This was because the Midwestern weather and geography was similar to what aviators would encounter in Europe. This elite group of pilots belonged to the 332nd Fighter Group that would become known as Red Tails. Training out of airfields at Selfridge, northeast of Detroit, and at Oscara on the shores of Lake Huron, 15 Tuskegee Airmen were killed while training in the state. Five pilots were lost in Lake Huron, one in the St. Clair River, and nine as a result of land crashes or mid-air collisions. In 2014, one of the Bell P-39 Era Cobra planes was discovered in the waters of Lake Huron. Later, another plane was found in the St. Clair River. The Michigan Department of Natural Resources worked with the National Association of Black Scuba Divers and other volunteers to survey these underwater memorials. The wrecks have been recorded and a number of artifacts taken to Tuskegee Airmen National Historical Museum in Detroit, Michigan. Join me in thanking these brave young men for their ultimate sacrifice to our country. And for more information, go to Tuskegemuseum.org. Today's podcast, Conservation Heroes of the Great Lakes, is sponsored by the Goat Soup and Whiskey Tavern open year-round in Keystone, Colorado, and seasonally at Putten Bay, Ohio, and St. Croix, U.S. Virgin Islands. For restaurant hours and menus, go to soupandwhiskey.com, where flip-flops and snow boots meet fine dining. This month, President Joe Biden was in Lorain, Ohio, a city in which I happen to have been born, to announce $1 billion in funding from the bipartisan infrastructure law, which will go toward cleanup and restoration of the Great Lakes. The bulk of funding is targeted to restore what EPA has identified as severely degraded areas of concern. The administration projects that funding from the infrastructure law, combined with funds from annual Great Lakes Restoration Initiative appropriations and other sources, should allow restoration of at least 22 areas of concern across Wisconsin, New York, Ohio, Minnesota, Michigan, Indiana, and Illinois by 2030, with infrastructure funding also benefiting three additional sites over the same period. Well, our guests today have been working on conservation for a long time. And there is a saying that if you want to get something done, you give it to a busy person. Well, our three guests today have contributed untold hours and passion to the conservation of our Great Lakes natural resources. Once again, I have invited one of my relatives to join North Coast Chronicles to share their story. Lisa kutchbach Brule is married to my brother Captain Rusperl, who joined our second podcast to share his experience of thirty years of sailing ore carriers. It always struck me that Lisa made good use of every moment that Russ was off sailing by starting the Lake Erie Islands on a path to conservation. Welcome, Lisa. But Lisa, I want to ask, um, the first question is, what is a wet, wild, and learning tree facilitator?
1: Oh, those are educational programs that um, the state of Ohio has that um, you go out and train high school teachers then in programs for the classroom. Oh, excellent, thank you so much.
0: Well, I recall that when you were living on Middlebass Island, Ohio, many years ago, you began the first recycling initiative. Can you tell me what? how'd you get started in that first recycling initiative? I mean, um, what I remember is a cage filled with uh, aluminum cans. Now, let me back this up just a bit by saying when I was growing up on Middle Bass Island in the summers anyway the dump was a wetlands I mean people dumped stuff into a wetland area on Middle Bass Island and you would see refrigerators and stoves and junk I mean it's hard to fathom but that's what was there and um and I don't know how it got from, I mean, I, I know you had everything to do with changing that whole wetlands into a preserved area. But I recall when you were starting out um, relatively newly married, little kids, and you were living on Middle Best Island, almost by yourself, you started the first recycling program. Now, how did you do that first recycling program? And then how did it go from there to really... Uh, conserving so much property on Middle Bass or in the islands today?
1: Well, actually, that first um, recycling program was just a matter of making a lot of phone calls to I found Alcoa to bring a container for us. But then later, we were lucky that the state of Ohio had a litter prevention program. And we hooked up with the county representative who actually headed up our Democratic Party here now, Chris Redfern. <laughs> I Chris first worked with him setting up a recycling program for the island and helping us get started with that. Um, but as far as land preservation, just very quickly to let you know that same marsh that what used to be everybody's um, trash can, Um, was how we got started with our land preservation. I was actually, it also is a very good resource for all the Ohio State University stone lab classes. And I was actually standing probably thigh deep in it, checking my insect emergence traps for my master's thesis when someone drove by and said, you know, we're trying to buy and preserve this. Are you in? And that's how we got started. We needed to find a nonprofit so that we could raise the funds to purchase that property so that it could become the Keenly State Wildlife Area. And since that time, there's been a number of cleanup efforts um, in relation with the airport to remove some of the refrigerators and things that used to be in that wetland, but it's a very diverse, neat natural area with a bald eagle's nest nearby. So that's kind of how we got started too with our land preservation efforts too was with that first project to try to raise half the funds to purchase that. I think our partners on that were Ducks Unlimited at that time.
0: Well, you know, I've I've heard that Ducks Unlimited um, will do quite a bit to preserve land, maybe for different motivations, but still, I'm glad that they jumped in to help. Um, it is really beautiful down there. Um, when you jumped in to do that. Did you find the Islanders generally really um, on board or did, you know, where was, you know, we always say that trying to change a way of thinking is a social engineering issue, right? It's, it's one thing to say you want to do it, but did you find that there was plenty of people that were willing to help and support and like, what was the major hurdle for you?
1: Probably the major hurdle was that people were worried about the loss of tax base, um, we're in an area that sees visitors here on South Bass of over 750,000 people a year. Um, and so there's a lot of expenses with um, you know maintaining um, our fire, our police, everything. And so any land that might be taken off the tax rolls was kind of seen as maybe a debit for being able to take care of those things. And it has taken us a while over time um, and COVID helped us a little bit with that too to show people that, you know, people will come in the spring and the fall for bird watching when you don't have as much of the other tourism. And during COVID, people loved having the trails and preserves to go to, both the visitors and otherwise. So that was probably one of our biggest hurdles. Um, But one thing I learned, I learned from a friend of mine, Carol Richardson, that you go and you find the people in the community that everybody looks up to and you talk to them and you get them to speak for you. And that was how we got our first project really going as we collected the list of names in support of our project and then went from there. So it's very much a learning process. Um, You want to just learn more about the trees and the plants and the birds and the bugs. But really, you have to learn how to deal with people and um, a lot more about real estate and lawyers than I had ever hoped to. (laughs)
0: I can only imagine. So when you first started that, you had to find a nonprofit because there wasn't a conservancy at the time. So how did you, you know, without a nonprofit at your disposal to receive those funds? What did you do?
1: We actually went to a couple of local entities that were already up and running. And and the one that took us on was the Black Swamp Conservancy out of Perrysburg, Ohio. Um, they took us on as a chapter in the year two thousand, something we're always very grateful for, so that we didn't have to start from scratch. We were a part of a very, um, an organization that already had ten years under their belt, um, and we were grateful to be a part of their organization until we got our own nonprofit status here in two thousand fifteen.
0: Oh, it was only just in two thousand fifteen. Well, you've done a heck of a lot over these years, so. Can you just quickly go over the all the
1: different um, types of um, preserves you put together? Um, these will seem pretty small um, compared to other places, but we're talking some fairly small islands. On Middle Bass Island, which is only 800 acres, we now have about 40 plus acres of wet woodlands, um, which is some of the r- rarer habitat on the Great Lakes. We also have some coastal... Um, um, shoreline here on South Bass at Sheffy's Point. And we also have what we call karst topography. We've we've got a couple of caves on our preserves as well. Um, and we do um, have our Massey Cliffside Preserve, which has some of the rare plants on the island that are found, such as the hare belt on the cliffs here. Um, so we've got a wide variety of habitats, Um, you know, that we try to preserve, um, and some of them mostly for educational purposes, too. We've got a new one that we're closing on next week that's very close to the Lake Erie Islands Nature and Wildlife Center.
0: Wow, it keeps going on. Glenn, thanks so much for joining us. Um, Looking at the Grand Traverse Regional Land Conservancy, uh, very impressed with the organization that you have. Um, It seems like you have really... uh, a a real organization with staff, you being the executive director. Um, You've got a lot going on. And of course, you're from an area where there is much more land than Lisa was describing on the Bass Islands. Um, Tell me a little bit more about how you got, how you started out in land conservancy, because it just didn't walk into the Grand Traverse Regional Land Conservancy.
2: Well, uh, both my parents are from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And my mother used to describe herself as a Lake Superior girl. And some of my earliest memories were swimming in Lake Superior and uh, spending time in the Les Cheneaux Islands in Northern Lake Huron. So water in the Great Lakes are part of my soul. And um,
4: we were raised
2: uh, as a family with a deep love of the outdoors and an emerging conservation ethic And uh, when I sort of just thought about what I wanted to do with my life, it was to get involved in protecting the Great Lakes and our natural resources. And uh, that's why I studied natural resources in college and uh, was very fortunate to be one of the, well, actually to be the Michigan chapter of the Nature Conservancy's first ever intern in the... 1980s when they were a small state chapter. Now they're a huge organization.
0: Well, you look a lot younger in your pictures, let me just say. Yeah.
2: And uh, so I've been uh, here at Grand Traverse Regional Land Conservancy for now going on 31 years and did some time in Virginia, but I missed the Great Lakes and worked a little bit for the Little Traverse Conservancy up in the Petoskey Harbor Springs area. So conservation is, I guess it's in my blood and in my soul. And I feel very blessed to do what I do every day and to be working on something positive and hopeful for the future.
0: When you got there 30 years ago and began this work, what, um, what was the state of things? What did you find there? Was this kind of already this mission of conservation um, kind of accepted practice in the area? Um, or was that something that you had to help Evolve with others.
2: Well, this area is pretty special. I mean, we've we've got some of the world's largest sand dunes. We've got uh, some of the most unique uh, fruit growing areas in the world. Uh, we're renowned for cherries and other fruits. And but back uh, thirty years ago, the area was developing rapidly. Urban sprawl was happening around Traverse City. And our local Rotary Club uh, felt that we were in danger of killing the goose that laid the golden egg, and that our natural resources really were the basis of our quality of life and our economic future. And so some really visionary people... uh, uh, said, you know, we really need to balance the growth that was going on with preserving the really special areas and features. And uh, it's great to have a a group like a Rotary local Rotary Club, uh, you know, business people and community leaders saying this is really important. And uh, so they started a land trust. <laughs> And they modeled it after the Little Traverse Conservancy to the north of us. And uh, my marching orders 30 years ago were uh, hit the ground running, and we've never stopped. And uh, we've been doing some pretty exciting things big campaigns and uh, pretty much a laser focus. But protecting the Great Lakes has always been a huge theme for us, you know, protecting watersheds that flow into the Great Lakes, protecting our coastal sand dunes, which are globally unique uh, geological features. And uh, we've, you know, success breeds success. We've just been, uh, we had a lot of early momentum and it's it's just continued and we're doing some exciting things even today. So.
1: It
0: feels like it went from an idea to just blossomed into an extraordinary initiative. Um, what I, I see that you, you've conserved thousands of acres of land, coastal and inland lands up there. And I have been up there. It is really a beautiful area, another beautiful area of the Great Lakes. But, um, so was there a moment you knew that you had arrived? At what point did you have the momentum, um, and the, and the support of the area that, 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 Populous, um, where you feel that it was definitely going to happen, it was definitely going to stay, and you were going to be able to maintain that momentum?
2: Yeah, I think in our case, uh, there certainly is tax base sensitivities. There's a lot of public land, uh, state and federal land in our region. There's a national park, Sleeping Bear Dunes. So these are ongoing <laughs> discussions in the community. But I think because we were started by Rotary, we had instant credibility. Um, and the Rotarians really uh, you know, opened many, many doors for me and became uh, mentors and uh, facilitators and ambassadors out in the community. But we also were, we've been blessed with great projects. You know, our very first acquisition project, uh, the Pyatt Lake Natural Area on Old Mission uh, near Bowers Harbor, was a wooded dune and swale complex. And, you know, it was, we were only a year old and we had 700 donors to that project. We had children from the local elementary school collecting pop cans. Uh, we had a foundation based in Detroit that saw an article about these kids uh, trying to help us save Pyatt Lake natural area. And they called me up and said, a project where children are leading the way really appeals to me. How about $15,000 as a challenge grant? Well, that foundation, the Bill Carl's foundation has gone on to give us uh close to nine million dollars over the last uh, 30 years um and it all started with these kids collecting pop cans and uh, writing essays in the local paper and really uh getting behind this project so we've built uh an organization a community at a time and in its its quality preservation projects that engage the community and of course, our biggest project was acquiring six thousand acres uh, on Lake Michigan in Arcadia from Consumers Energy, uh, and uh, that project we had to raise uh, over thirty million dollars in a in about a eighteen month time span, and it was really a D- David and Goliath story, and uh, it was thousands of people that love our Lake Michigan dunes uh, joining hands and saying, we, we will do whatever it takes to save this uh, magnificent uh, coastal dune area. And, uh, you know, projects like that uh, you build relationships. You, you 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 form a community of committed conservationists. And now you know we have thousands of people that support our work annually. We have many hundreds of volunteers and um, people. And during this pandemic, ironically. When everyone thought, oh, geez, nonprofits are really going to be struggling, we've had our two best years of uh, fundraising and support. So people are valuing the outdoors uh, more than ever. And they understand that, you know, our region of Northwest Michigan is in the center of the Great Lakes, 20 percent of the Earth's surface fresh water. And it's one of the most special places on the planet. And in my mind, the most special place on the planet. And I've done a lot of traveling around the world. And but they are also realizing it's it could be lost if we don't take steps to preserve it. And uh, so we've really the community is really behind this effort. And it's very gratifying.
3: Yeah,
0: I, I can imagine that it is. And what I'm hearing is that um, both you and Lisa indicate that, you know, you need leaders with you as a rotary. And Lisa, they selected some folks who are leaders in the community to follow. Um, and then getting children involved, um, because they're inspirational, and they get involved and, and other folks follow as well. And as I said, Lisa does a nature camp and all of this, you know, teaching kids at a young age that it really matters and getting them involved is really fabulous. A uh, Pam Beaver Island. Where is Beaver Island in Michigan?
3: Beaver Island is in northern Lake Michigan, about 32 miles um, by ferry from Charlevoix. Um, we're also 12 islands that surround us, almost like a crown. And there are about 600 year-round inhabitants.
0: Were you you born and raised on the island? I know you certainly have relatives there, as you indicated, that you come from a long line of beaver islanders, but were you actually born and raised on the island?
3: That's correct. I, I attended the school there, um, which was the only school in the United States taught by Dominican sisters because of the fact that we didn't have a tax base to support education. And these sisters... Took it upon themselves to give us an education, so that this, you know, their students could go off and have a career on the mainland and interact with people.
0: Well, it obviously worked because you were a nurse for many years and now retired. And so, thank you for that service. Um, I, I, it's, um, thank you. It's uh, important work, as we know. Um, and um, so, but you've then, uh, even though I, was, I, I'm guessing you worked off the island, but still kept coming back throughout your lifetime?
3: That's correct. My parents lived there uh, along with some of my brothers. My brother was a ferry boat captain. My father was a captain who brought many of uh, the visitors across the lake to the island.
0: Well, 32 miles off of Lake Michigan, I don't think I realized that it was that far off um, and uh, find that fascinating to me that feels like out in the middle of Lake Michigan, it feels very vulnerable out there. I don't know what your storms were like, um, but um, I see that uh, Beaver Island is only 55 square miles, so that's not that big. Um, and uh, but it is part of a beautiful archipelago, and I have not been to Isle Royale. It is one of my bucket list things to do and to see Beaver Island. Now, um, did you grow up with, the, because of where you were in particular, did you automatically kind of grow up with a sense that you needed to preserve what you had on Beaver Island? What is that culture like?
3: Well, I think as a child, we were always out in nature, whether we were watching the monarchs in the fields or the birds. Um, to be on an island. We were swimming in the fresh waters, always outside. So it really came later in my life that I truly appreciated what these islands really became home to. There are many state and federally protected species that call these islands home along with humans. So we have, you know, piping plovers and hind's dragonflies and dwarf-like iris, and all of these um, species can be impacted by tourism. And with the COVID going on um, recently, besides invasive species being a threat to the environment, human disturbance also is a threat. Yeah, I
0: can imagine, especially when you have limited land, limited protected land. So what is the Beaver Island Association? Now, there is not a Beaver Island Conservancy, per se, correct? And you work through an association?
3: Well, we're actually very fortunate on... Beaver Island to have the Little Traverse Conservancy. They have multiple preserves um, that have been established to protect certain species like the Michigan monkey flower, which there are only 13 sites and it's endemic to the Great Lakes. So we're very fortunate that they have stepped up to preserve some of these areas. The Beaver Island Association's mission then is also to deal with economic and environmental sustainability with um, the small number of people we have on the island, it's important that we use volunteers, basically, to do what we need to do. And just as Glenn and Lisa have mentioned, we were able to collaborate with partners, whether that be the Little Traverse Conservancy, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, um, the DNR. A third of our island is actually under the control of the Wildlife Division of the state of Michigan.
0: Uh, Tell us a little bit about your work with invasives.
3: Well, there are multiple um, invasives that we're dealing with. We started in 2007 with the Phragmites project. At the time, uh, Phragmites was new to northern Lake Michigan. So we ran into um, a woman from Michigan Natural Features Inventory, who discussed early detection and rapid response. So we were able to, in a very short time, take 30 acres of phragmites that was establishing along our shoreline and get that down into little sparse, less than a quarter of an acre across the entire shoreline. So following that um, success, we were able to go out and actually treat the other outer islands. Uh, Another project that um, I've been involved in, we had a decade of monitoring for the emerald ash borer, which is decimating ash trees across the Midwest. So we worked with the Nature Conservancy and the Michigan Department of Ag and monitored for 10 years on Beaver Island. In 2017, we detected our first emerald ash boar on the island and put into a a program now that we're releasing parasitoids. And all of this is being done by volunteers. We're probably the only group that um, is doing this in the country, but we're very... Involved, and we want to preserve our trees.
0: Um, so, to to do some of this work, are you literally going out in the woods and yanking stuff, or how are you? Elim- how are you trying to uh, eradicate the invasives?
3: Okay, so with Phragmites, we did a major education system, which is used across um, Michigan. We had videos, we had news articles, just to get everyone on the same page. And because we're on a well system, we didn't want chemicals to be used at the wrong time, maybe the wrong dose. So we hired a contractor that would use herbicides in the most um, environmentally friendly way possible. So we have actually, that's how we were able to control our phragmites. Now with the emerald ash borer, the parasitoids are actually a very small little freckle of an insect that is specific to the emerald ash borer. It actually attacks that insect and only that insect when EAB is no longer detected then that um, parasitoid dies out. Could you
0: explain what the Phragmites is?
3: Phragmites is a very tall, invasive um, wetland grass that grows 12 to 15 feet high. It will actually um, take over a shoreline so that a turtle couldn't come ashore or a duck couldn't take its young back to the lake. Um, It secretes an acid that kills a lot of the native plants that grow along the shoreline. And we were able to work with Dr. Blossie from Cornell University, who did the initial work on controlling Phragmites.
0: So Pam, you you talked about volunteers. And I'd like to talk to all three of you about the nature of volunteers, because I mean... uh, I know that if I said, "Gee, you guys are doing a great job," you would say, "Well, you couldn't do it without the many people who volunteer their time," and I, I got it. Um, but in recognizing that you are leaders in your own right and you've done extraordinary stuff, I do know you can't do it without um, without all those people who are as committed as you, Lisa. Getting back to you, um, how? <laughs> How how do you function now? How do you organize the forces? Um, you have a lot of activities. I mean, I've looked at, at all of your sites and there's a lot of activities going on. You have fundraisers. You have, um, you know, you're your hosting events, um, um, field trips, um, getting people out on the trails. Um, but you also have to get a lot of people to do things like pull invasive plants and things like that. Um, what is your magic? How do you get them there?
1: Well, we are lucky to have very 11 very committed board members who are all volunteer and the help of the Pundin Bay Township Park District, which has a board that is also volunteer. Um, and we do every year hire an AmeriCorps intern, um, too, that comes and helps us during our busiest times of the year. And yes, we have had an event this last year that we're going to do again. And it's a garlic mustard challenge, and we've challenged a city of green down near Akron, Ohio. And this year we'll have another city joining too to see how many pounds we can um, pull in one day. So we've also tried some publicity stunts too, which we hope will work.
0: Well, publicity is always hard, right? And um, especially when you don't have any money for publicity. Hey Glenn, so you have a really solid organization. I mean, like a brick and mortar place with people and staff. Um, How do you though maintain a core of volunteers? Because- You guys aren't all doing it yourself in the office.
2: Yeah, I think there's a couple of elements. Um, We treat our volunteers as colleagues. Um, I think too many organizations uh, view them, at least their staff do. Sometimes it's cheap labor. That is not what it's about. Our volunteers are our most valued valued colleagues. And uh, many of them have, incredible life experiences.
4: They have a lot
2: to offer. Uh, We give them some autonomy so that they can make decisions and feel empowered. And uh, we, we actually are investing in our volunteer program right now, we have a volunteer program coordinator, who has a very sophisticated recruitment process and retention process. And we're actually doing a big capital campaign to to build a volunteer hub at an old golf course that we're renovating uh, with some of the facilities. And we're going to have extensive training programs out of this facility and make it a regional hub for volunteerism in, in, in our region of Northwest Michigan and open it up to other nonprofits that are in the environmental space. So, Uh, I'm just amazed at the talent that's out there. I mean, the person that's running this uh, preserve where this golf course is located used to uh, run a national uh, prairie reserve in Iowa, and he's got over 30 years of experience. And he moved to Traverse City. He could have moved anywhere in the country when he retired because of the great volunteer opportunities and the ability to contribute and he's been recruiting <laughs> many volunteers through the new newcomers club you know people that are moving to this area because of the beauty uh people that still want to contribute and just want to be engaged and get involved and we're, you know our door is open and we uh, we, we've been doing a pretty good job of connecting with those folks.
0: Um, Pam, who rallies the forces uh, on Beaver Island?
3: Well, I think it's a group of us. Um, it tends to be the Beaver Island Association. Perhaps it'll be the townships on another um, project. But I think another important feature for volunteers is the homeowners themselves and their property values. Property values can be impacted by environmental degradation. And so that brings people out in force.
0: That's a really great point. Instead of having people think that they might um, lose a tax base, They actually grow the value of their properties by maintaining the natural resources around them. I think that's a a really great tactic. Um, Has any of you, have any of you had to get um, folks to donate any of their land? And like, what was the first step to make that happen? What would motivate anybody to give away their land? Lisa, you
1: wanna jump in? Um, So far, we've had people that have come to us and given us partial donations of their land um, because they do wanna see it preserved. Um, This has been a big step for us. That, you know, it used to be, um, you know, we would come to a property that was threatened by development, but now we actually do have property owners coming to us that want to see the properties protected and and might be willing to donate a portion of the the sale price. So we have been lucky to be the recipient of, of some bargain sales. And we've had a couple of donations, too, of smaller parcels that have not been developable. Um, whether it's a wetland or whether it's too rocky. So we're glad that people are finally coming to us for those.
0: Yeah, that's great. Hey, Glenn, um, did you have to twist the arm of that utility that donated their land or any other issues?
2: Well, you know, my favorite response to the question, why do people donate land in conservation easements? And there are, there are three reasons. Love of the land, love of the land, love of the land. And often people think, oh, it's the tax break or it's that. Um, It really does start with people's love of the land and um, the the tax benefits generally are like icing on the cake. Uh, But consumers, uh, that was an interesting uh, transaction. We actually had support from then governor, Jennifer Granholm, who's now the secretary of energy uh, she did some arm twisting with uh, consumers energy and opened the door. And, uh, and we also got a lot of help from the Michigan chapter of the Nature Conservancy through their corporate council. So every transaction is different, but for, for most landowners that choose to protect their land, it really is love of the land that is the driving force.
0: Um, hey, Pam, on Beaver Island, is there a percentage of the land, if you had to guess or no, of the land that is, uh, is pre- um, a preserve or preserved and protected?
3: Okay, so the state of Michigan actually owns a third of the island plus multiple smaller outer islands. And then the Little Traverse Conservancy probably has close to another thousand acres that they maintain. So
0: automatically you kind of have it right in your backyard. The land was already there and now it's just protected it, I'm guessing?
3: That's correct. And again, sometimes it has come to the Little Traverse Conservancy because there is a special um, protected plant species on the property or else it's a matter of the family coming to them, asking them that they would like to have an area preserved.
0: That's great. And... and, um, Pam, as you're looking forward, and I'm going to ask this of each of you, if you could mull it over, Pam, as you're kind of looking to the future, what do you think the next big thing is for you guys? What's the next big activity or the next thing you have to conquer, um, you know, towards living your passion of of, uh, taking care of your resource?
3: Well, we are embarking on uh, International Dark Sky, which will help humans and the natural environment and birds. So we have um, applied for a sanctuary status for our island. So that's very important to keep moving that. And that's a pretty big um, project for volunteers to undertake. And the other um, piece that we're working on right now is the UNESCO Obtuang Biosphere designation which um, has been started by the University of Michigan, but will encompass our islands.
0: Wow, that's pretty exciting. What is um, Operation Dark Sky? You said International Dark Sky, but I think of Operation Dark
1: Sky.
3: Right. Well, the International Dark Sky is located in Arizona, and they are the authorizing um, organization that will certify an area. You have to have lighting ordinances in place. but anyway, there's quite a few requirements that they um, require light meter readings at all hours, photographs of the night sky. So we're, we've we um, submitted our application along with everything, and we're just waiting to hear on that.
0: Wow, that's so interesting. Glenn, what is next on the horizon for you guys? What's the next big big initiative that you need to conquer?
2: Well, uh, I this is going to be an interesting one. Um What we're starting to see in Northwest Michigan, uh, Michigan's population is declining in much of Michigan, but not in Northwest Michigan. We're actually continuing to grow uh, and fairly rapidly at a pretty high rate because of our beautiful natural resources, I, I think, and our recreation opportunities. But what we're seeing, and this is going to be an interesting thing to look at, we're seeing climate-changed induced migration to our region. You know, the West is in severe drought and fires. Uh, there's unstable, uh, you know, extreme weather events in the South and other parts of the country. And the Great Lakes, uh, a we have a stable supply of fresh water, which is, an incredible uh, resource advantage for us and a more stable climate, although we are starting to see some of the effects of climate change on our agriculture and and, uh, species migration and whatnot. So I think that's gonna be a, a big change. And of course the pandemic has accelerated that because people are now realizing they can work anywhere and if they're gonna, if they can work anywhere, they're looking at the map and saying, you know, Northwest Michigan's pretty beautiful. So, uh, I think one of our challenges is as this area continues to grow fairly rapidly, and it, as real estate values shoot up, uh, like we like to say, the land is still calling, and we are still answering. And so, the challenge will be able to. To, you know to mobilize the community, raise the dollars, uh, engage you know the next generation of conservation leaders uh, to get behind our mission.
0: Thank you. Um Lisa, what is the next big challenge for the Lake Erie Islands Conservancy?
1: So far, we have a few more large projects looming that I really can't mention yet, but we're hoping to see preserved here in the next ten years. Um, But our next step is really to make sure that our organization is sustainable long-term, to make sure that we have paid positions in addition to our volunteers. So we are lucky our Lake Erie Islands Nature and Wildlife Center now has a paid director and um, two other paid staff our conservancy. I'm paid part-time, and we're hoping soon to hopefully have someone working also for our Pudden bay Township Park District so we can maintain all the progress that we've made so far.
0: Yeah, it's one thing to build, but, you know, maintenance is always uh, a challenge. But thankfully, you have all done extraordinary work, Um, and there's a lot of people who are backing you up 100%. So, um, for those folks... They could be young, they could be old, they could be, they're just new to the business, they're retired, they're at home, um, don't have to commute anymore, and they've got a little more time on their hands, and they would like to start something. Um, could I, I'm just going to, I'll go to Glenn and then to Lisa and then to Pam to ask, you know, what would what's your best advice? Um, I mean, is it just as simply as jumping in? Greg, what would you say?
2: I would say jump right in. Um... You know, uh, Land Trust, I think all of our organizations are getting more sophisticated using, you know, the web, and we all have websites, and we all have ways to get in touch with us, but uh, I would, uh, you know, come out on a field trip and start meeting, uh, meeting the people that are involved in the organization, other volunteers the staff who are so passionate. But, uh, you know, we have a very rigorous and growing outreach program as do many land trusts in the Great Lakes Basin. And uh, so there's lots of ways to get involved. And uh, you can find a land trust near you through the Land Trust Alliance website, which has a nationwide a database of all the local land trust, uh, depending on where your geography is. So there's lots of ways to get involved. And I think you'll be greeted very warmly.
0: That's a great advice. Lisa, how about you? How do you go from one to 100 in today?
1: Well, I, I think that, you know, holding maybe a community meeting um, or, you know, reaching out to, you could see a lot, as you know, on the um, Facebook and our website are probably our best outreaches to everyone. And we've been able to get, you know, a lot of support from people we, you know, never would have thought about, except for that outreach. Um, and going around to other community groups in your community too um, to learn more about what some of the challenges are, or how you might be able to work together. Absolutely.
0: Be, you know, we, we want to make people feel that they can make a difference. Pam, for you in Beaver Island, um, what do you suggest, um, well, I guess, to anybody who wants to get involved? What, what's a good first step?
3: I would suggest picking up a phone and reaching out. Um, there's certainly all sorts of opportunities for any type of work, whether it's just a day or whether it's a, a three-year commitment. Um, I also think that people can get involved with their planning departments. I think master plans, recreational plans are important for every community and it allows the average homeowner an opportunity to get their vision out in front of the government. So I would strongly encourage people to get involved with their area planning.
0: Yeah, you can't, I guess, make a difference necessarily just sitting and twiddling your thumbs. You got to actually get out and do it. Our sincere thanks to Lisa Brohl, Glenn Chown, and Pam Grasmick for taking time with us today to share their experiences in conserving Great Lakes resources. And thank you all for joining us on North Coast Chronicles Tales from the Great Lakes. I'd love to hear from you. Send any comments, ideas for shows, or to be a sponsor to North Coast Chronicles at gmail.com. The views of this podcast are mine and do not necessarily reflect the views of the U.S. Department of Transportation. Please join us next month as we go back in time to learn about the high life of the late 1800s in dance halls and full dress balls. Until then, be good to one another.